right, I'm sitting here trying to keep my head from exploding. You just can't make this stuff up. And, and we've got to talk. This is just outrageous stuff that's going on. And this is a, a note to all of you who have kid, children in school. Maybe you have grandchildren, but if you care about your kids, we need to pay attention to this because this will make your head explode too. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we'd like to have confidence in some other institutions in our land, but it's increasingly difficult. And I can't believe what goes on sometimes. I've been a part of this particular conversation and battle in our state in Florida. Uh, did I mention I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida? But I found out about something that's going on in another state that just it resonated with me big time, and it's a huge problem around the country. I hope, I really mean that, I hope it's not a problem for you and for your children attending a public school. But I'm afraid it may be, and we need to be alert to this as parents. It's part of our responsibility as Christians, as parents, to watch out for our kids. And if I don't say this enough, I'm going to say it right now. Your children need you to watch out for them. Now, we think that in certain contexts, like when we're out and about, we watch so they don't wander off and, and get separated from us. Well, that's one way we look out for them. But there are other ways, and and we'll get into this a little bit more, probably. I've got to kind of keep my head from exploding, but we need to talk about how your kids need you to look out for them when they go to school, because school is not what you experienced when you were a child. School has changed, and our children need us. But let's start with something more fundamental than the issue I'm concerned about. We'll get to that. I know you're all wondering, what in the world? Well, that's okay. Keep wondering. But let me, let me go back to a fundamental reality of American law. It's foundational. It's where we started. And I want to remind all of us, and if you're not aware of this, sear this into your brain because it's really important. It's right up there with the, with the sense that we have religious liberty in this country, and we do, freedom of conscience. Religious liberty is our first freedom and must be preserved at all costs. And what I want to talk about is related to that. But I want to start even before we get to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. I want to start with the Declaration of Independence. Now, most of us, when we think about this, we think about Fourth of July and fireworks and all of that, our nation's birthday. Wonderful. Keep thinking that. Celebrate. It's a reason for celebration. But don't stop there. Make sure you look into what really was said in the Declaration of Independence because it is one of our most important documents. We have three great charters of freedom in this country. One of them is the Declaration of Independence. One of them is the United States Constitution. And the third is the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. They are enshrined and carefully guarded in Washington, D.C. Go see them if you have a chance. I'm hopeful to do that again when I get to Washington. Of the times I've been, I haven't had the opportunity to get there. But anyway, let's go to the Declaration of Independence. That started it all when we said that free people, when government betrays them, have the right and the responsibility to reconstitute government and to set their own path. 
one of the things that's absolutely vital for all of us to understand, and it's spelled out very clearly in the Declaration of Independence, starts with the recognition that our rights come from our Creator, come from God. Most people in the history of the world have not started there. They have allowed government to give them their rights. And we as a people in the United States have consistently said, and we need to give new expression to that and a rebirth of that idea, we've consistently said that our rights come from God and we must never, did I say never? I meant never allow that concept to slip away. Never. Our rights come from our Creator. Sometimes we hear people refer to human rights. Well, okay, I don't know how they always define that, but it's a right by virtue of creation that we have rights given to us by our Creator that no one can take away. That's the language of the Declaration when it says unalienable rights. No one can take away. Now, it lists that idea of rights very briefly. It's not meant to be all-encompassing, but it says among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You probably remember that phrase from the Declaration. Good, but do you remember what comes next? Right after it says that these, uh, that among these, and referring to these, among these rights, it doesn't say rights, but that's what it's talking about. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What comes next is this very important phrase that to secure these rights, okay, stop right there. So the Declaration and the founding men and women of our country asserted that to secure these rights, in other words, to make sure these rights are never taken away, to make sure we have them, it says governments are instituted among men. So that's a vital concept. Governments, as we in America have always understood it, are in place to secure the rights of the people. Not to tell the people these are your rights and you have no others. Not to take the rights of the people away. Their primary responsibility is to secure the rights of the people. Now, I'll grant you there are not too many people in our government that would start there. They've just lost sight of it. But we've got to pull, our, pull ourselves back to that. That would help solve a bunch of our problems. But anyway, so we understand that the Declaration of Independence reminds us all and declared that our rights come from God and that we form governments, we institute governments to secure the rights of the people. Now along comes a federal court in Maryland that recently ruled that parents don't have a fundamental right to opt their children out of LGBTQ curriculum based on their religious beliefs. Now the parents involved disagree, but the judge, think about this, the judge, a member of our government, remember that branch of government called the judiciary, that judge said that the parents don't have a fundamental right. Now, is that judge preserving the rights of the people or undermining the rights of the people? Well, I'll let you figure that out. I don't have any trouble coming to the conclusion that that judge does not understand the purpose of government and that judge does not understand the rightful role of the judiciary in that government. Governments are there to preserve the rights of the people. Well, this, this all started because 
a mother named Grace. She was Catholic. She has a daughter with Down syndrome enrolled in the Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. Now, stop right there. Some of you say, well, I'm not in Maryland. Why does this matter to me? Let me tell you. It matters to you because this kind of nonsense is going on all over the country. So don't dismiss this. You might say, well, my teacher's a good teacher. Wonderful. I hope so. Well, my teacher's a God-fearing person. I hope so. But that, that doesn't always keep trouble away. Because teachers, sadly, are too often coerced into doing things that they don't want to do and that harm your children without you knowing about it. Not trying to make the teachers bad people. The hope is that we could all partner with teachers that parents and teachers working together could provide the very best education possible. But we're watching the, the rights and the role of parents be undermined in our nation. And I'm saying to you parents, don't let that happen. Your children need you to speak up for them, to advocate for them. So in this Montgomery County public school system, they were teaching some LGBT curriculum that this mother and others, by the way, objected to. And so they wanted to opt their children out of the instruction. Now, sadly, and as I understand it, Maryland law allows them to opt out, but the district no longer followed that policy and no longer gives parents the option to opt their child out of curriculum they find objectionable. Now, this little girl involved here, in this case, Grace was her mother, she has Down syndrome. She's 10 years old. Part of what her mother was arguing is that to be exposed to this material would, would undermine and rob the child of her innocence. She's a child. Let her be a child. She doesn't need to learn about all these things. She's a child. Let her be. And lots of other parents were saying the same thing. But the district was not providing an option for parents to opt out of the situation. Now, before we get further into the specifics of the situation, let me talk a little bit about this idea of opting out. Opting out has been the primary way that parents have intervened in schools across the country to exempt their children from instruction they find objectionable. Many places, many school districts, many states provide a vehicle for parents to opt out. Now, according to this article, Maryland law allows it. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't look up the Maryland law. But according to the article, Maryland law allows for parents to opt out. But the school district ignored the law and wouldn't let them opt out. And the federal judge said that parents don't have a fundamental right to opt their children out. That's outrageous. Both that the school district would behave that way and that the judge would fail to preserve the rights of the people. It's a violation. When they don't let the parents opt out, it's a violation of the parents' First Amendment rights because it involves their freedom of religion to raise their child according to their conscience, and it involves the fundamental right that parents have to direct the education of their children. That's become a huge battle across the country. And never, ever give in. Parents are responsible for raising their children. That's the way it must be. That's the tradition. That's been the legal concept for a long, long time. So this mother said, and then you'll like what she said here. She says, as parents, we are the first primary educators of our children. 
We join with the teachers to help in the education of our daughter. We have entrusted them to cover the basic academics. And we also retain our right to raise our daughter in the faith that we so choose. So she's arguing for the opportunity to opt her child out. Now, opt out means simply that a parent can say to the school, I don't want my child exposed to this. I want them taken out of the class. And in in a lot of places, when the opt out uh, possibility is there, then there's also included in that opt out provision that no penalty should come to the child because the parents opt them out. Now, that's all well and good. And that's okay. But there's a huge mistake being made by parents and by school districts and by state legislatures when they continue to operate with an opt-out provision. We in Florida, and my work with the legislature and with some individual legislators and with parents, we have been arguing for a long time now. It's difficult to get people's attention on this. Very difficult. Sadly difficult. We've made a lot of progress in Florida, but we still need to fix this. We've been arguing for a long time that we need to have an opt-in provision, not an opt-out. An opt-out provision puts all of the pressure on the parents to find out what's going on in school and then to say to the school, I'm opting my child out. Plus, that puts the child in an awkward position. If most of their friends are in the class, then the child is singled out to be excluded from the class. And so you can easily imagine the kind of unfriendly dynamics that creates for a child who is opted out. Plus, the pressure, as I said, is on the parents. And what if the parents miss something? Now, a lot of times at the beginning of school, parents get a lot of forms to sign. And some of those are related to this idea of opting out. And parents often are in a flurry of trying to get it all done, miss what's going on, and they don't know. That's why we have consistently argued for an opt-in provision in the law where the parents choose for their child to be exposed to this material. There are things in every state that are required by law to be taught, but every parent should then still have the opportunity to say, no, not for my child, because if the curriculum violates their conscience, their deeply held convictions, they should be respected and the school district should respect them, but increasingly they are not. So the opt-out provision puts all the pressure on the parents because the school district can do whatever they want to do, and then they can say, well, the parent didn't opt out. And the parent might say, well, if you had told me what you were up to, I would have known, and the school district will say, well, we did send this form home. Well, these forms can be rather vanilla and complicated to understand and don't explain the whole story, and when parents find out about it, like me, they're head explodes. So you can see it puts all the pressure on the parents, which must not be. Now, we've argued this in the state legislature, and I've met with a a number of senators and members of the Florida House over these many years, and most of them, they don't quite get it. They think, well, if they can opt out, we've solved the problem. They don't quite get that that puts all the pressure on the parents. We want to flip that and say the pressure ought to be on the school district, on the school to convince the parents that they want their child involved in this class, exposed to this curriculum. Why shouldn't they, they being the school, be put in the position of selling this idea to the parents rather than putting the parents in the position of having to react to the school? 
So we have been arguing, trying to help legislators understand that an opt-in provision puts all of the power in the hands of the parents, because now the school has to come along and convince the parents that this is a good idea and a good thing for your student. We think, I think, I hope you think that that's the way it ought to be. We want the parents to be in control of the child's education, not the school. And we don't want the parents being put on the defensive about all of this. We want them to be the very first to be able to say yes or no. Now, one of the arguments we've heard, and this just kind of, again, I guess my head's exploding a lot this week, and you'll forgive me for that maybe, but this is a very, very significant thing. It, it relates so much to our Christian faith and our freedom to practice it according to our conscience. We must give parents an opt-in opportunity. And I've said to legislators, and and it's almost like their eyes still glaze over. I don't, I don't get it. I can't understand it. I think it's just a question of we have to keep pounding on it, and eventually they will get it, or enough of them will, that we'll get this changed. But, but they just don't seem to understand the importance of this opt-in idea. And so when I'm talking to them, I hear them say things like, well, the school districts tell us that opt-in is, is way too much paperwork and too complicated for them, and, and they can't manage the extra requirements of having an opt-in provision. To which I laugh out loud, shall we say. I don't laugh out loud in their face, in their office. Okay, understand that. But short of my head exploding again, it just kind of blows my mind shall we say, that a school district will say, well, it's too much work for us to have an opt-in. To which I say, hmm, isn't that interesting? I'm pretty sure every school that I've ever known about requires every student who participates on their athletic teams, every student who plays football, every student who plays volleyball, every student who plays soccer, you name the sport, it doesn't matter what it is, Every student has to opt in to that sport with their parents' permission. And I remember, and I know it's been a lot of years ago, with one of our children, we even had to sign that we recognized that if they got hurt, it was our problem. Well, if the school can manage an opt-in for their athletic teams, give me a break. You're telling me they can't manage an opt-in for everything that parents might think is controversial? Of course they can. They just don't want to. Now, am I suggesting that they're all up to no good? No. I think some of them are. I believe ideology has been guiding some of this stuff, and some of our educators, maybe too many of them, I haven't done any real work to be able to sort that out. It would be very difficult to determine that. But at least some of the decision makers think they know better than the parents. Well, really, if you ever run against some run up against someone who says, "I know better about your child than you do," ask them ask them some questions about your child. Ask them, "Would you know the name of my child?" They might or might not. You might ask them, "Do you know my child's favorite color?" Most parents would know that. "Do you know my child's favorite food?" "Do you know which food my child refuses to eat?" You know, ask some questions like that. Do you know what my child's favorite toy is? Well, see, they don't know these things. They don't know your children like you do. It's impossible for them to. So they can't know what's best. That's why parents need to have the opportunity to make these decisions for their children. And we must not bow down to this. We must not back down from it. 
because our children need us. Now, all of that saying that our children need us is, is because of this. Our children go to school and they don't know what's what, okay? We send them to school and we say to them, well, you listen to your teacher and you do what you're told, all right? That's normal. We would have said that in one way or another to our children because we wanted them to behave and we wanted them to learn and we certainly didn't want them to be brats at school, to put it bluntly. Well, this mother who is fighting the school district over this says the very same thing. She's quoting the article. Especially with a child with Down syndrome, just because of her abilities, if every day we're asking her to listen to what her teacher says, for her to go to school and learn something from the teacher directly, and now have to come her, to have her come home and have to tell her, well, what the teacher taught you isn't what we believe. For a child like her, that's going to be very confusing. Well, I would suggest that's going to be confusing for every child, most children. Their parents know best. Their mother, their father know best. And so we must not ever cave in to this idea that somebody who doesn't know your children knows better for them than you do. We can't cave into the idea that that they know best and we need to trust them. You know, we want to cultivate, I think we do, I hope you want to, we want to cultivate a sense of trust with our schools, don't we? We want our schools to be a place we can trust and we can entrust our children too. What amazes me is how little some schools want to participate on developing that trust. They don't seem to care whether they respect the rights of the parents. They don't seem to care whether they try to earn respect. They just go on the way they go. And I don't think that there's any justification for cutting parents out of this. And I want to encourage you as parents, grandparents, ask your children specific questions about what happens at school. When they come home, ask them, how was your day? Well, we typically ask that, and they'll say it was good or it was bad or whatever. But sometime, ask them about a, a day, like you might go into it like, like this. Well, when you first get to school, what's the first thing you do when you walk in the door? Who do you see? And they might tell you, and, and then what do you do? And it might be things like, well, I take my coat and put it where it belongs, things like that. And then they, you might say, well, when the bell rings, when the school day starts, what's the first thing you do? And then begin to ask them, well, if they have a social studies class, ask them, well, what specifically did you do in social studies? Did your teacher hand out a paper? Did you bring that paper home? Do you have a book for that social studies? Could you bring that home so I could see it? Well, now here's a clue. And again, I, I can't believe we're having to talk about this. I just really can't. But ask your child to bring the things that they study from home. They may not have to bring every book every day, but ask them to bring a book. I chose social studies just because that's something children study sometimes. Ask them to bring their social studies book home. Now, if they are not allowed, if they tell you our teacher won't let us bring home our papers or our book, that's what we call a clue for parents to check into things. Now, it's entirely possible they're just trying to preserve the book so they don't get lost. I understand that. But it's also entirely possible, because we've seen this around the country, that they're trying to hide something from you, the parents. 
And before God, you have a responsibility and a right to know what they're being taught, what's in those books. And if your child says, well, they won't let us bring it home, or worse, if your child says, well, they told us not to talk to you about this, there's another big clue. Occasionally that has happened in schools where, where something will be taught in a classroom or they'll go over something and teachers will say to the students, now you're not allowed to tell, tell your parents what we talked about today. Well, now think about that. Parents tell them to go to school and listen to their teacher and do what their teacher says. And then their teacher says, don't tell your parents. And so what are the, what are the kids going to do? Well, mom told me to do what the teacher says and shh, teacher told me not to tell them. So I guess I better not tell them. You see what I mean? Your children need your help. Now, again, I'm not the enemy of teachers. I'm not the enemy of schools. I'm the friend of students and parents. And I know this stuff goes on. And I know many of you are sitting there thinking, oh, there he goes again. And yeah, here I go again. You're thinking, well, that's not in my school. What you talked about was in Maryland. I know it's in Maryland, but I've seen outrageous stuff in Florida, too. And we have some of the best laws to protect parents parents' rights you'll find around the country. So so I know something about what I'm talking about. I don't know your situation. You may have a teacher who is absolutely the finest person you've ever known. I hope you do, actually. But you know sometimes those teachers are coerced into doing things. So let's go back to Montgomery County Public Schools. In November of 2022, the elementary school principals had some concerns about the contents of the books that would require them, or that they were required to use, and they would require them to make comments that were dismissive of children's religious beliefs, one. Two, would shame dissenting children. So if your child disagree, they would be shamed in front of the class. And three, require teachers to state things as fact that some would not agree are fact. Even though these principals had that concern, the school board in Montgomery County, in Maryland, went straight ahead and still did it. So what I'm trying to say to you is, sometimes your principal, your teacher at your child's school wants to do the right thing, but they are not allowed to do it because the school requires them to do something different. And you cannot always expect that the teachers or the principals are going to quit their jobs because of something that comes along like that. Now, it would be great if a bunch of them would. But, you know, reality is they have children to feed, they have a family to take care of, and what are they going to do if they quit? So, you see, they have enormous pressure. Lots of people face those kinds of pressures. And all I'm saying is that when you begin to hear about this stuff, I'm speaking up for your children who don't know they should speak up to you. If they hear something, they don't know how to, how to handle it. They're, they're children. They don't know enough about right from wrong, good from evil. That's why you're their parents, to teach them that. So please, don't be intimidated by the school. Now, I've read some things, and I've read some policies, and there's one in this article I read, um, these school district people, I mean, they're really good at writing gobbledygook sentences. I mean, they're long and flowery. they got lots of words in them, and they use this, and they use that, and they go around this way, and they go around that way. And I can just imagine when I read some of this, that, that good salt-of-the-earth parents out there, they're, they're reading that and going, good grief, I'm not sure I even understand this. 
I'm not sure I should even speak up. I'm intimidated. They know so much more than I do. Well, they might be educated, but let me tell you something. I know a little bit about education, both my education, what I've studied, and watching education. A lot of these people, they write this gobbledygook jargon stuff for each other, not for clarity, not for understanding, but just to make themselves look smart. And you parents, don't be intimidated by words. If you know in your heart something is wrong, you tackle it and don't back down. They may try to convince you you're the dumbest person that ever walked the earth. Your children need you to be strong for them, to have the courage to stand up for them, to look into these things and to not be intimidated. I so admire these parents that are willing to step up. And this this mom here, they lost in federal court. Now they're going to appeal. And by all senses of justice and the proper function of government, they should win. But in the meantime, in your situation, your child needs you and may not even know how to say to you, Mom, Dad, I don't understand what's going on in my class at school. Can you help? Can you come to school and find out? See, they might even be embarrassed for you to do that. Get over all of that stuff and speak up and stand up and advocate for your children. As a pastor, as a Christian, it's the right thing for me to encourage you to do. And I can't do it for you, but by the grace of God, by the strength that God gives you, you can do it for your children and for yourself. And if you need to get your pastor's help or your friends help, get some other parents together and go in there together, but don't back down. Stand up for your children. It matters so much. And if you can't solve the problem, teach them everything at home. Homeschool is a viable option. Don't be afraid of it. Well, we're going to get into a Bible study here in a minute. We're going to continue our story from the Old Testament. So take a break on my head. I'll put it back together and we'll be right back. I'm Pastor Rick. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. back and yes i put my head back together from exploding i think i'm over it but no i'll never be over it because we gotta we gotta help parents and we gotta encourage parents and we gotta give parents the opportunity to direct the education of their children and we've got to get our country back to preserving the rights of the people including and especially their religious liberty well we've been watching god's people another group of people that left egypt in pursuit of religious liberty and we're hoping that they will actually opt in to following God. And uh, we're going to take a look at that story. We've been following the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and if you've been with us, you've been following that story too. And we've been discovering, or making sure, I should say, maybe not discovering, a lot of us probably know this, but making sure that, that we really understand what we mean when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've followed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we are past that. We're past those three beginners to God's people, the people who began the process or began as God's covenant people. And we've gone on to begin to trace the group of people, the nation, shall we say, called Israel. You remember that Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had an encounter with God, and his name was changed to Israel, and we use that name, Israel, now to identify God's people. And that's pretty significant. That's, uh, that, that's a very big expansion of the promise that God gave Abraham, that he would make of him a great nation, many descendants. And so we followed Joseph to Egypt as a slave. Then he became second only to Pharaoh, where he then was allowed to oversee the seven good years, followed by seven bad years of famine. And so in doing all of that, he saved the lives of many people, including the lives of his family. They moved to Egypt, but after a number of years, they were enslaved by the new king, the new Pharaoh in Egypt. And finally, God sent Moses 
to lead them out, and they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and were following their journey. And one of the ways to think about that is they're learning now how to get along with God. And they're running up against a number of challenges, and some of them of their own making and own foolishness. Uh, Some of them are just, well, God is testing them. And you can kind of sort this stuff out as you go along and, and, and kind of watch and realize that they really were no different than many of us. But we have the advantage of learning from their experience. So now they come to a spot and it's all about something to eat. So I think I want to read down through this from Exodus chapter 16. I'm using the New Revised Standard Version of the uh, updated edition. And let's talk about this whole incident here because it's quite fascinating and it's it's actually an incident that has some resonance in our normal language um, as Christians, but sometimes I think in the culture beyond. So Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites, and remember the Israelites are all those people that were descendants of, of Jacob the, when he became Israel, the Israelites. When the whole, the whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, here we go. There are going to be some complaints to the people as we go along through the story, and here's one today. We don't have enough food to eat. They are complaining against Moses, it says in the text, against Aaron, it says here. Complaining they don't have enough food. Now, there's a couple things going on here. One is, what in the world do they mean they didn't have enough food? They brought all their stuff with them, and then some from Egypt. Their, her- their herds that they had, all their animals, plus all the Egyptians gave them all kinds of stuff, and now they're complaining they don't have a way to sustain their lives out here? Hmm, something's really going on here. And the second really intriguing thing is, it doesn't seem as obvious in our English translations, but in this verse 3, there's a purpose there. That specifically, they're accusing Moses and Aaron of purposefully bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. So this is no light thing. This is no light complaint that they're offering here. So the Lord talks to Moses about it in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that day I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us but against the Lord. Now, there's some serious stuff going on here. Very serious. Now, one of the very important things, very important things to notice is that in verse 4, God responds. Let me read you again what God said. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, 
and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. So you see, they're learning to live and to get along with the God who delivered them from evil. And he says, I'm going to find out whether they will. Now, they had said they trusted God. They had seen God's miraculous deliverance, not only in getting out of Egypt, but getting through the Red Sea on dry land. And then turning around and watching the Egyptian army get decimated as they tried to follow. So they had seen powerful evidence of God. They would seen the fiery pillar at night and the cloud during the day, the visible evidence of God's presence among them. And they're still, as God says, they're complaining. And they're complaining against the Lord, not against Moses and Aaron so much. And God says, okay, I'm going to test them, see if they'll do what I say. Now, part of what goes on here is, is the noticing that God did provide what they needed. I heard a friend, I can't remember who it was now, but it's been many years ago, a guy was talking about how he would take his son or grandson, I can't remember now the details, but those details don't matter, to McDonald's. And they would go to McDonald's and he would buy the little boy whatever he wanted, I guess, probably a Happy Meal, something like that, and, and included in what he got was French fries. And they were there eating their lunch one time, and and uh, this guy asked his his uh, son or grandson, whichever it was, let's say son, his son, if he can have a French fry. And the little boy objected to that and began to hide his French fries. You know how kids do that. Have you seen that? No, these are my French fries. You can't have one. And the guy said later, thinking about that, he said, what that little guy didn't realize is that he only had those French fries because I had given them to him. But all of a sudden, he thought they were his and that he had to be real guarded with them, real careful with them, real, we could say, selfish with them. And he went on to explain what he didn't understand was that if I wanted to, I could, I could shower him with French fries. He could have more French fries than he could ever begin to eat. But the little guy couldn't think like that, didn't know how to think like that. And isn't that the way we think toward God? Isn't that Israel's problem here? They didn't know how to think about God as being able to give them more than enough for what they needed. And now the God who is able to do that, I mean, if he could get them through the Red Sea and get them out of Egypt and all that stuff, I mean, you don't think he could handle the little food problem? Well, God set this up and he said, and I don't want you to miss it. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. So in verse 9, Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Let's just pause to remind ourselves, these people could see the presence of God among them, the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Continuing on verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Again, God is pointing out, I'm God, I'm here, guys. Don't miss this. He's going to find out whether they'll do what he says. So, verse 13, continuing on, In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. So let's start with the quail. There are, there are, we know because of history and because of the biology 
of that area that there were flocks of birds that traveled migratory paths through that region. Now, some people have speculated, and we don't know exactly the geography that was involved here. And some people have speculated that that maybe that because of God providing this quail, which He does, that they He rerouted the quail to come to their spot, or maybe it, in the way God unfolded things, it happened to be that time of year. None of that affects the fact that God provided. But these flocks of birds would fly along, and they would look for a place to land, and they would land, and they would they would cover the field where they would land. I mean, there were so many of them. There were so many of them that there were reports that these kinds of birds would land on boats and sink the boats. There were so many of them. That's a lot of birds. So the b- birds were provided. The quail was provided miraculously by God, either by using what already existed there and rerouting them, or perhaps just... It was that time of the year, and so God took advantage of that and used that for his purposes and provided for his people. So that's a little bit of background on the quail. Let's go ahead with verse 14. When the layer of dew lifted, we're talking about now the morning layer of dew. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer per person, according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over. And those who gathered little had no shortage. Hmm. Came out even for everyone. I continue. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some part of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Pardon me. Some left part of it until morning. And it became wormy and rotten. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as each needed, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So you get the idea. Every morning it was out there, this what we call manna. It's named later in the chapter here. What we call manna was out there. We don't know exactly what it was, but it's described here in kind of general terms. We get a little bit more information when we read how they handled it. But the long and the short of it was they were supposed to go out in the morning and gather just what they needed for that day. That's what God provided just what they needed for that day. Remember, he was providing this to see if they would obey him. And uh, if if they did what he said, everything was fine. If they uh, gathered too much, then it became rotten and wormy. And that would be pretty nasty stuff. And that was evidence that they hadn't done what God said. So not only, you think about it this way, not only was God looking to see if they would do what they were told, but they could see by the results that they hadn't done what they were told. So now this is very interesting. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece. And by the way, an omer, think quart if you need to do that. Two omers apiece. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. 
Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, just as Moses commanded them, and it did not rot. There were no maggots in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today it is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So you see what God is already beginning to teach them is the importance of Sabbath. And, and not only did they not have to work to gather it on the Sabbath, but he didn't have to provide it for them. And it's really remarkable. Remember the other days, if they had leftovers, it became rotten and wormy. But on the sixth day, when they had to have food for the next day, the seventh day, it didn't rot and get wormy. Isn't that remarkable? See, God is clearly showing them that he's providing this for them. And, and yes, I know, we still wonder what exactly was it, what, what it was, but it was some mysterious substance that they could bake or boil or make something. Maybe it was a grain-like thing. A lot of people speculate. It's really, we just don't know. And by the way, the name manna, the name manna comes from the, the Hebrew when they said, what is it? There's a, there's a, a sounds-like issue going on there. We call it manna. So anyway, okay, now on the seventh day, verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. See, that's a very important concept. Now, this is before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Before God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he's instituting this whole idea of Sabbath remembrance. And they had to learn to trust him. Now, we've, we've called faith on this program absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And here in this story of God's people learning how to get along with God, God is asking, will they, on the one hand, do what I say? And does that willingness to do what I say demonstrate trust? See, we can, we can think about it in that way as well. It's not just whether they, would they do what God says, but did they trust him enough that they would realize that doing what he says is fine because he will come through. So at the end of one day, when you've used all the manna, do you have confidence, do you have faith that God is trustworthy, that he'll provide it the next day? And so they didn't have to keep any leftovers because it was available the next day. Then on the sixth day, did they have faith, confidence to gather enough to provide for the sixth day and the seventh day? Because we read the story, some of them went out on the seventh day looking for it and it wasn't there. Well, God had said, get ready for the seventh by collecting twice as much. And the people that did were fine. The people that didn't, well, it doesn't say this specifically, I guess, but apparently they went hungry because they hadn't learned to trust God. Now, what about us? What about us? Have we learned to trust God? Now, I, I was really quite taken some years ago when I was challenged by someone, and I hadn't thought about it in this way, but they were exactly right, to think about our giving of tithes and offerings to God as a trust test. And the more I thought about it, the more I think, yeah, that's right. 
You know, people argue about, well, do we have to tithe? You know, we need to get over that. That's just really a distraction. The point is, do we trust God? It's not about do we have to do something. The point is, do we trust God that he will provide for us? That's the point of this story that they were learning to trust God. So, so when you go to church and you give to God your tithes and offerings, that's representing your willingness to trust him to provide because you're giving up some of the resources he provided through your employment, through your own energy and effort. He provided that because he gave you the energy and the effort to do it. And now you trust him enough to put that in the offering plate. And you know it's gone forever. You know, we, we are getting more concerned about what we put in the offering plate than, than impulse spending at the store. We need to think about that. We need to ask ourselves, am I reluctant to give to God because I'm selfish? Or is it really a deeper issue that I just don't trust him? Or is it like the little boy in the french fries? I haven't realized that God can shower me with whatever he thinks I should have, and he can more than handle what I need. And I think a lot of us come up short on that. Now, I'm not going to tell you that if you give to God, he is going to multiply the money back to you and you're going to get rich. I don't read that anywhere in the Bible. I know people talk about that. They say it. I think it's wrong. But I do believe the Bible says, trust me and I will provide for you. And I have believe and I have experienced dozens of people in my lifetime that have put God first and never, ever been sorry. They realized they could trust him and they were more than willing to trust him. And so they did. They trusted him. Question for us is, do we trust him? Uh, that's a good question, don't you think? I think it's a very good question. And I think we need to give consideration to that because this is a good illustration that some of the people didn't. They, they learned to, but they didn't at this point. And God wanted them to trust him. And really, that's a continual lesson that they will learn as we go forward. It's a continual lesson for us, don't you think? Will we trust him? And so God provided manna for a number of years. They continued to walk with him. But they did have a continuing problem with complaining. And we'll get into this a little bit more and maybe circle back to this. But uh, what, about, what about this business of complaining? Uh, how, how, do you, how do you think about that? How do you handle that for yourselves? Well, I've been around churches and church people a long time. I've witnessed a fair amount of complaining. One person wants this, one person wants that. Sometimes it's related to what we call the worship wars. I like this song and I don't want to sing that one because I don't like that one. And back and forth it goes. And, and it's difficult when you're the decision maker and you have to decide what songs to sing and what not to. It can be difficult to kind of sort through all of that because, for example, in music, you know that the, the things that you use in church need to be the language, so to speak, that the people speak. You know, and, and just because the worship leader likes a particular type of music or a particular song, if it's not the language that helps the congregation express their faithfulness to God, then you have to step back and say, is it appropriate to use that? And I think if we're going to learn the lesson from this, we have to learn that one, God can provide, and he's not reluctant to. When it's a legitimate need that we have, God can and will provide, and he proved that with the manna. But I think we also need to learn that some of these things are tests. 
He's testing us to see how we'll respond. And we need to respond with faithfulness and trust, not with complaints and stirring up a problem. And maybe God needs to get you to trust him more instead of complaining about stuff, instead of saying, well, if you only did this, I could trust God better. That's just baloney, okay? Let's just trust him and let's be careful that we don't put ourselves out there to manipulate and control for our benefit. Let's trust God. Will you join me in trusting God? I'm learning that lesson all the time, trying to trust him more, trying to take more courage to trust him, and I hope you are too. We're going to continue this journey with God's people, and we'll see if my head explodes next week. But I hope you'll join us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we'll be back on Faith Is. Join me then.